The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Uh, This is a holiday weekend, as we all know, but it's still the Lord's Day. And I'm happy that you are here to worship with us today and to listen to the Word of God. And my message today is not a Fourth of July sermon. And I hope that you've got all the fireworks out of your system and you don't really need me to add to that experience. But what I would like to talk to you about today, today's message is entitled, For the Sake of the Elect, and I suppose that if we were to speak of fireworks in a theological sense, that this would be the message that I would want to preach on a day like this, because this is one that has stirred up a lot of heat, stirred up a lot of excitement, even stirred up a lot of anger among Christians. Uh, This is a very hotly debated subject, and it has been for almost 400 years. Now, the Protestant Reformation was 500 years ago. These are doctrines, actually, that go all the way back to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and were taught by the Apostle Paul. But they were brought uh, to light again during the period of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had obscured these types of doctrines for thousands of years. And although they weren't new, they were obscured. And then in the Reformation, these were brought out. But since then, since about the 16th or 17th century, actually, uh, a little bit after the Reformation, this became a very, very hotly debated subject throughout Christian churches. And uh, perhaps even as much or almost as much as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity And yet here we find these kinds of doctrines. Uh, The one I'm going to talk to you about today is just very, very hotly discussed, a very debatable subject. Now, in, in the past few years, this topic has come to the forefront once again as there has been an upsurge. There has been a rejuvenation of the doctrines of grace as there are many churches that are beginning to turn back to what our Baptist forefathers taught. And you would think that that is a very good thing, but unfortunately there are many preachers that don't really see it that way, and they are in nearly a panic that there are so many that are returning to these particular doctrines. I recently heard one preacher say that he didn't like the term, the doctrines of grace, that he thought that that was misleading when it comes to describing these doctrines, but I would have to say sadly for him that his arguments go for naught because he doesn't get to name for himself what theologians have already named. Now the doctrine of election that I want to talk to you about today, this is a continuation of last week, but this doctrine that I want to talk to you about today is one of those doctrines that belongs to a theological system which includes the depravity of man, It includes the particular redemption of of the sacrifice of Christ, the particular redemption of God's elect, the effectual calling of God's elect to salvation, and the preservation and the perseverance of God's elect. And all of that grouped together is what we call the theology of salvation. Now most of you probably think of salvation in much simpler terms, that you think of salvation uh, being your faith in Christ, the hope that you have of eternal life, the responsibility that you have now that you have become a Christian to live according to that hope and that life that God has given you. And those are good things. Those are things that you must know. And one of the greatest blessings that we have in salvation is that we don't have to know a whole list of doctrines in order to be saved. We can come to Christ in a very simple faith, so you don't really have to be a theologian in order to get saved. But after you're saved, there's a responsibility for you to learn more about your salvation. And there is my responsibility to teach you more about your salvation. And this is why we take up subjects like this one today. Now, the doctrines of grace are developed in Scripture to help us to understand better who God is and to know that, in fact, that salvation was planned from the very beginning by God 
that it was brought about in time by God and that it's going to be consummated at the end of time by God. And to put it, put it to you very simply, salvation from beginning to the end is all of God. Now, interestingly, my daughter Clarissa, who's with us here today, gave me a quote from a book that she was reading in which the author said about Christ, this author said, he went 99.99% of the way and extends a nail-pierced hand for us to grasp. Now, unfortunately, that's not biblical salvation. Now, that sounds good to the untrained ear, but that kind of salvation would leave you headed straight for hell. Salvation is not 99.9% God and 0.01% you. No, Christ went 100% of the way. And your ability to grasp that nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ was even given to you by God. Salvation is a free gift of God and it never depends upon anything that you do for him. Now, if you had to actually grasp Christ's hand by your own power, you would never do it. And the Bible tells you why that you can't do it. As an, as an unbeliever, you can't do it because you are dead in trespasses and sin. And what that does is it, it speaks to the depravity and the inability of man, which is one of those doctrines of grace. And here you see the problem that I have of trying to actually separate out one of these doctrines, which is the doctrine of election, and try to teach it to you without bringing in the other doctrines because they are so closely united, they're so closely tied together that if one of them fails, all of them fails. So I'm sorry if I have to bleed over into some of that other doctrine to help you to understand this. Now, let's look here at this text in Matthew 24. And our study in the book of Matthew has brought us to this place. And what I've done is I've pulled out this word elect from this text. And the context of it is the tribulation period that happens just before Christ begins his kingdom upon the earth. And we're going to return to that context in the next message on this chapter. And this is really the beauty that we have of the study of Matthew that, that we've been able to see so many different doctrines as we've gone through Matthew verse by verse. And so whenever we want, we can just stop and we can pause and we can spend a little bit of time talking about just one word. And this will help us to understand what Jesus means when he talks about the elect. Now if you would stand with me please as we read God's word. Matthew 24 and uh, let's read down to verse number 26. Matthew 24, verse 21, down to verse 26. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to understand the subject today, and though it may be very difficult for some, uh, we just pray, Lord, that you'd remove predispositions and that you would help us to see your word exactly as it is written and to understand what you'd have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, before I begin, let me just read to you a, a parallel passage from the book of Mark. This is parallel to... Matthew 24, verse number 22, which Mark says or writes the words of Jesus in Mark 13, 20. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. Now you can see very clearly from this scripture that Christ has singled out from the rest of the world... From those that are going through the tribulation, he has singled out some very special people to be objects of his protection. 
And from the context of these words, we can see that this is a protection that God does not give to other people that are living in that time. There is something very different about the elect. And here we see that these are special people to God, and God in this text is paying very particular attention to them. Now, you should also know that the elect are not peculiar to that particular point in time, not just to this future time where it talks about the tribulation, because God has always had a people that is known as the elect. Throughout the Old Testament, there are people that are known as the elect, And I mentioned uh, those last week in the people of God in the last message, so I won't go through that again. There were also people that are living in the time of the New Testament that that are called the elect of God. And there are people that are living in this time that are the elect of God. And there are people that will live in the future, as we've read in the book of Revelation, there are people, or in the book of Matthew here, and then in Revelation, there are people who are also the elect of God. And these are the people that God is going to bring salvation. Now, for those of you that didn't hear last week's message, then I want to give you some very important information, just a very brief part of the information that we talked about last week. And we began with defining the term. What is the definition of election? What what does that mean? What, What do we mean? What does Jesus mean when he talks about the elect? Well, let me give you the definition given by Augustus Strong in his systematic theology. He said, election is that eternal act of God by which in his sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones out of the number of sinful men to be recipients of his special grace of his spirit and to be made voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. The elect are chosen by God to become partakers of Christ's salvation. Now, what this means to you is that if you are a believer here today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer because God has chosen you to believe in Jesus Christ. Election is an eternal act which means that God chose you in eternity. Before the world was ever created, God chose you to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you doubt that, the scriptures are very clear about the time that you were chosen. Now, when we study these things, it's not my purpose ever to manipulate the Word of God. We don't have anywhere to go but to the Word of God to find out these things. And we go to places like Revelation 13, verse number 8, and there it tells us that God has written down the names of those who will believe in him. He wrote those names down before the foundation of the world. We looked at the attributes of God that prove that whatever was in the mind of God has always been in the mind of God. And so if God saves you in time, then he must have chosen you in eternity. God's immutability proves that. Immutability means that God cannot change. His original purpose has always been his purpose, and what was in his purpose has always been in his purpose. God's omniscience proves that God chooses some. James said that God knows all of his works from the beginning of the world. And so if you're saved, then God knew that you would be saved. And there's no doubt that you would be saved. Your salvation was preordained. And that's proven by Acts 13.48, by Romans 8.29 and 30, by 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2 and other scriptures that I'm going to give you today. We talked a little bit about God's foreknowledge. That God's foreknowledge is the same as election. Foreknowledge includes election because God foreknew people. He foreknew certain people would be called and justified and glorified. And so very simply put to you, salvation in every part from God choosing you, from the Holy Spirit working within you to regenerate you, from justifying you from your sins in the blood of Jesus Christ, from giving you a glorified body when you get into heaven, all of that is of God. It is not 50% God and 50% you. And let me stop right here for just a minute. It has become popular in certain circles to say things like this. That God votes for you. And Satan votes against you. And you cast the deciding vote. 
And that's many people's idea of election. But let me tell you something about this election. You don't vote. There is no suffrage for you because you weren't there when the election was held. It was done before the foundation of the world and it only had one voter and that was God. God is the one who decides this. Now salvation then is not part you and part God. It's not even 99.9% God and 0.01% you. As the word of God says, salvation is of the Lord. Now let's go a little bit further in our discussion to, some, to a new area that we haven't talked about yet. And that is the design of election. What was it designed to do? Why is election so necessary? And I want you to write this down because this is extremely important. That election is designed to get people to heaven. Election is designed to get people to heaven. And I know there's some who say, well, that can't be true because election keeps people out of heaven. If there is an election, then it means that there are some people that are shut out. And then you have others who say, well, everybody has to be given an equal opportunity. And in other words, everybody must be given their chance to be saved. And I'm going to answer those objections in a few minutes, but I'm going to tell you this right now, that there never has been a time in all the history of the world that everybody has had an equal chance to be saved. Our brother back there is a missionary and been to New Guinea and places like that. Uh, he knows that there are places in the world where people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why we send out missionaries. Not everybody has had an equal opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ, and neither have they ever had that opportunity. Not in the past and not now. Now the Bible does say that there is coming a time when all people will hear the gospel. That's in the future time. That's in the tribulation. And there the word of God tells us that there is an angel that's going to preach the gospel over the entire world. That's found in Revelation chapter 14. And Jesus alludes to that event in Matthew 24 verse number 14 in which he said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Now there is no doubt that election is unto salvation. That it gets people into heaven. Now, last week I told you there are some who like to make arguments that election is only to service. Now, is that a true valid argument or is that just someone expressing their opinion and trying to advance a theory to avoid the obvious implications of Scripture? And so to that we just ask, can the Bible not speak for itself? Can't the Bible just tell us about this? Well, it does. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you look at that and you see we are chosen from the beginning and chosen to salvation. And here we're given the means by which we understand our own election. How do you know that you are the elect of God? You believe. We're set apart by sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And that shows us that God ordained salvation, but he also ordained the means by which his people come to him in salvation and that is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never let it be said that we would teach or believe that a person will ever get to heaven without believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has ordained that means. Now, let's go back to the design and let's answer the objections to this doctrine in two ways. There are many ways we could, but let's look at it in two ways. First of all, we are chosen for God's pleasure. Now, let me read... Uh, some scriptures that will help you to see that. And I'll take you first to the Old Testament and God's choice of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7 it says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. That's God's choice of Israel. 
to be his people in the Old Testament. Now we go to the New Testament. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 5, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse number 9 of that chapter, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. In Philippians 2.13 it says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so you were chosen not to do your own thing. You were chosen to do what God has ordained for you to do. And God's choice is his pleasure. And it wasn't because of something that he saw in us. God did not say to Israel, I chose you because I saw that you're such a great people. I saw that you were going to do so much for me because he definitely didn't see that in Israel. I saw what you would do and so I chose you. It's because of who you are. I chose you. And then the Apostle Paul, in those three verses that I read from the New Testament, he did not say that God chose you because he saw that you would do good works. And he didn't say, I chose you, God chose you because he saw that you would believe in him, that you would have faith. No, God is the one who gives faith, and so faith can never be the basis of God's choosing. He chose simply because it was his pleasure to do so. And doesn't God have the right to do anything that he wants to do? Doesn't God have the right to do everything that he wants to do? In Daniel 4.35, the Bible says that he does according to his will, that no one can stop him, no one can say to him, What are you doing, God? He chose us because it pleased him, because he wanted to. Now you have people all the time and say, Well, I don't think that's fair. What about fairness? It's not fair that God should choose some and not others. Well, is fairness an objection against a transcendent God? Fairness implies an obligation. If salvation is because of fairness, then it can't be because of grace. Because if God is ever obligated to do anything, then his grace can never have a part of it. Fairness implies there's something in man that... God is obligated to observe and to answer accordingly. But I'll tell you that the only thing that God is obligated to do is to give justice. No matter what, God is a just God and he must give justice. And I'll tell you this, that it's far better for him to punish your sins in Christ than it is for him to punish them in you. And the only thing that God sees in you is that you are lawless, that you have transgressed his law, that there is hostility between you and him, and you demonstrate that every single day of your life. And so, if you want God to be fair, then just ask God to give him what you deserve. And if you do, then you can forget about salvation. You might as well give up right now and say, God, send me to hell, because hell is what every one of us deserve. And if we get what we deserve, according to fairness, the whole world will go to hell. Now, amazingly, I did hear a Baptist preacher the other day who said, why would God send anyone to hell unless they have a chance to believe? And I have an answer for that. And how about this? Because they're sinners. Because they've broken God's law. Because they deserve to go to hell. That's all you need to know. And if you want to take that a step further... Until you come to the realization that you deserve nothing from God but hell, then you're never going to be saved. And if you're stuck on the opinion that what God must do is he must give you a chance to be saved, then you don't understand who is boss. You don't understand who gives salvation. You don't understand by whose will you are saved. And you don't understand that it's not chances that save people. Chance has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And so when a person is saved, we don't say, well, God was obligated to give him his chance. We say that God was merciful and gracious because he gave that person his gospel and made them, helped them to understand it. Now let's take a a look for just a moment at God's choice in Revelation chapter 9. Excuse me, Romans chapter 9. And and you can argue that God should do this or God should do that. And you can try to force God into your way of thinking. But what we have to do is we must look at Scripture and see what God has to say about it. 
And let me set the scene for you as we begin reading here in verse number 7 of Romans 9, that the Apostle Paul is arguing that the gospel does not make a change in anything as regards God's relationship to Israel. That God has made promises to Israel and those promises must be fulfilled. That's actually some of what we're reading about in Matthew chapter 24. God has made his promises to Israel. They will be fulfilled. And in the midst of that argument, we glean some very important information, which is that the divine choices of God are founded in the good pleasure of his will. And that agrees with the scripture that we've already read. And we notice here how emphatic that Paul is that God should have his way. And the argument becomes so strong that by the time that Paul gets to the end of it, he knows that there's going to be an objection. That people are going to say, this is not fair. And basically it's the same argument that people still make, that if God is totally sovereign sovereign in choosing people, then it's just not fair. Well, let's read it together. Romans 9, beginning in verse 7. He says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh. And you might want to circle the word flesh because you're going to hear that again in just a few minutes. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now do you see God's choice? He's already outlining it here. He didn't choose all of the children of Abraham. He chose the children of promise. And who are they? Verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Now God didn't choose Ishmael who is Abraham's son by Hagar. He chose Isaac who is the son by Sarah. Verse number 10, and not only this, not just Sarah, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated." And there you see that God chose Jacob instead of Esau. And it says they were chosen before they were born. Before they ever could have done anything that was good or bad. Well then comes the objection to what he's just said. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is this not unfair? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he hath mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And then after he says that, there's another objection. He says, Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And folks, there he is outlining the sovereign right of God to do what he wants. That he is the creator. He is the potter who makes the vessels. As I quoted from the Puritan William Perkins last week who said, We must not think that God does a thing because it is good and right. But God does a thing because it is or it's good and right because God does it. So God is the one who determines what is right. God made you. You're the lump of clay. He is the potter. He molds you into a vessel of honor or to dishonor. And you can struggle with that. You can argue with that. And the natural human heart does argue with this, but it makes it no less the Word of God. It doesn't change anything in the Word of the sovereign God. It says that we are chosen for His pleasure. But it doesn't end there. The design of election is not just God's pleasure to have a people for his name, but there's also an end to be accomplished in this. And that is that we are chosen for God's purposes. In Ephesians 1 verses 11 and 12, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance 
being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now God's purpose is to have a people that will glorify him. And you really ought not to be confused about what salvation is. That salvation does not have its terminus in man. And election does not have its terminus in man. Election is for God. It's designed to bring God glory. Now you can see that by what we read in Romans 9. God said about Pharaoh, who is the object of his wrath, he said, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name shall be declared throughout all the earth. Now I'm going to tell you the danger of a system who's always, that is always elevating man. It's always talking about man and what, and what man is, what man does, and, the, and all of these kinds of things. It takes away from the glory of God. And God has never designed salvation to take away glory. It's designed to give him glory. It's always that way. And you might think, well, the sovereign God has lost control. Can't you see that? Can't you see what's happening in America? Can't you see how wicked that people have become? And can't you read in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, about the tribulation that's coming on the world and how wicked that people will be? Aren't you aware that the sovereign God has lost control? And we would say to that, never. Because what God is doing, he's letting the world build up to a display of his glorious justice. In his wrath, he will condemn people that turn against him and that will exalt the name of God and all his works will magnify his name. God has never lost control of anything. Well, then what about you that have been elected by God to salvation? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So here is God's purpose and grace, is that you would do good works to the glory of God. Now, I could take some time to describe to you what all of these good works entail. I could do that. But let me just simplify it all and boil it all down to this. That anything that works within or fits within God's commandments, any obedience that you give to God is God's work. And obedience in all forms glorifies God. Now, let me answer the objection that more would be saved if God had not selected some. And my short answer to that is that none will be saved if God had not elected some. Election is designed so that some will be saved rather than all being lost. And so there's more saved with an election than without because some is always more than none. Now for the person who halts at that argument, you don't like that. There's really only one thing that would appease you and that would be universal salvation. In other words, if election is not right, then God must save everybody. And there are still some that struggle with this, and, and, and they just can't get this in their minds, and so they want to get rid of God's eternal election. Because they think if they can get rid of election, then somehow more people are going to be saved. If God had never done this, more people will be saved. Well, let's back up just a minute, and let's look at God's foreknowledge. We talked about that last week, but could you get rid of the inherent problem of some being saved and not others if you get rid of election? What if we were supposed that, that God's foreknowledge is just merely this, that it is knowledge of the future? Like the fortune teller that I missed, mentioned last week, that God knows things, but God has no control over things. He just knows that they will happen. Wouldn't his foreknowledge also limit those who are going to be saved? If we really understand the omniscience of God, that his omniscience, his foreknowledge, is just as much an infallible guarantee that some are going to heaven and some are going to hell. The numbers of people that go to heaven or hell would not change if you got rid of election. If God knows who's going to heaven or hell, then there is no amount of time that's ever going to change that. And doesn't that also mean that God has allowed for some people to be born that he knows will go to hell? 
So you can wrestle with that all that you want. You're never going to improve the numbers of people that will get to heaven by getting rid of election. And so what you have to do is you must be prepared to argue that God is unjust if he doesn't save all. If you say that he's, ar- he's unjust because he saves some. It was Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor, who argued that God's election is his intent to save. That it's all right for God to save people. I think we would agree with that. Yes, it's all right for God to save people. Well, then can it be wrong for God to intend to save them? And that is exactly what election is. That is God's intent to save people. And so if he saves them in time, it can't be wrong to say that it was... It can't be wrong if he intends to save them before time. Now let's look at another argument for just a minute. Why must God choose us before we can be saved? Why why didn't God just leave us alone? And why didn't God say, well, have at it. Do your own thing. Come to me, don't come to me. You just do your own thing. Well, there's a good biblical reason for it, and I alluded to it at the beginning of the message. And the answer to it is that, uh, that God must always move first. God always has to move first. And you say, well, why does God have to move first? Ephesians 2.1 tells us that. And you hath he quickened, or you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. I said earlier, you can't pull the doctrines of grace apart. God has to act first, because every person has the problem that we find in Ephesians 2, verse number 1. A chance to be saved, if everybody had it, would not do anyone any good because nobody has the ability to seize that chance. All are dead in trespasses and sin. They are spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life in them. We are dead to God. And you say, well, does the Bible really say that? Well, Ephesians 2.1 said that, but maybe you're not comfortable with that because I've heard preachers redefine dead. You want to get around the doctrine, so you just redefine dead. Well, let's look at it a different way. Romans 8 verse 8 puts it very simply. It says, so then, I told you it underlined the flesh, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's inability. Do you have trouble with cannot? What does cannot mean? Cannot. Do you understand English? Well, those of you that don't understand English... Maybe you need to read that in Greek. Because the Greek says, not able. Hmm, not able. If you're in the flesh, which means you're not saved, you are unable. Not able, cannot please God. That means you can't please God by believing in Christ. Now, could I ask you, what is the chief thing that you could ever do to please God? Wouldn't it be that you would believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the only begotten Son of God? Wouldn't it be to have faith in Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that be the very best thing that you can do to please God? And yet the Bible says you cannot please God. You have no more the ability to believe in Christ than a dead man has to get up and walk. A man who's been dead for a hundred years has as much chance of believing in Jesus Christ as a person without the operation of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Now let me, that's God working first, by the way. Now let me illustrate that for you. You know, I, I don't often go into long illustrations. You hear me preach and rarely almost do you hear an illustration. And the reason that I don't is I think that the Holy Spirit is well capable of speaking through his words rather than mine. So I don't have a lot of stories to tell. I don't have a lot of illustrations to give. But I'm going to give you one if you'll bear with me for just a minute. And hopefully this will help penetrate your hard heart or hard head as the case may be. And and we'll see if this helps you. Now let's suppose for just a minute that I am interested in all the dead people that are in the cemetery in Santa Rosa. And, and I am distressed because there are people that are in the graves in the cemetery in Santa Rosa that do not have a chance to dig themselves out. And so I, I go to the funeral directors and I say, Sir, I think what you ought to do, you ought to include a spade with every casket. I think that you ought to put a shovel in there so at least you give these people the opportunity to dig their way out. And you would say, well, that's totally crazy. The funeral director would say, you, are, sir, are a nut. 
And I would be. Because dead people are what? They're, oh, good. Thank you. They're dead. You know, I have been to many funerals, and I have never seen a person sit up in a casket and say, Wait just a minute. You mean you're going to shut the lid without giving me a shovel? What's wrong with you? I've got to be able to get out of this place. And folks, that is an exact parallel to a person or an exact parallel to the gospel without the Holy Spirit. It's like sticking a spade in the cemetery and say, get out. Dig yourselves out. And so, what did Paul say has to happen? First, he says God must quicken. He said God must make alive. The spiritually dead person cannot believe until God brings him to life so that he can believe. And what does that tell us? God must move first. God always has to move first. Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus. Our classic text on the new birth, on regeneration. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We must be born again. We must be born from above. There must be a supernatural power by which we are regenerated. And then we can see the kingdom of God. And seeing, folks, is the same thing as faith. The only way that you can see, the only way that you can have faith is if God does a regenerating work in your soul. He must move first. Now, then, does it make any difference when God decides to move? He must, decide, he must move first. Does it make a difference if he moves five minutes before you believe? Does it make a difference if he moves ten minutes, a day, a week, a month, a year? Does it make a difference if he moves a million years before you're saved? Well, it makes no difference at all, does it? And it just so happens that he told us when he decided he was going to move. And that was before the foundation of the world. God's determination has always been his determination. He is the eternal God. Time has no effect on God. Election means nothing more and nothing less than God's eternal purpose to save a person. Now let me wrap this up. I'm going to give you a third point. Stick with me just a little bit longer. Number three is the defense of election. And I really shouldn't have to defend the doctrine. You should want to believe this because it furnishes for you the best defense of eternal security. And you can underline the word eternal in that statement. Matthew 24 shows that God is very serious about protecting his elect. He is a God with eternal purposes. And if he elects you, then you can't fail to make it to your destination. Now, you may say, well, I've heard you preach today, and all of the things that you said, that's a pretty good argument. That's a pretty good argument. And, uh, but is there anything else besides a good argument? So I'm just going to take a few more minutes to leave some scriptures with you that show you a further defense the doctrine is true. Now, I haven't yet taken you to the most famous verse in the Bible. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 2 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in, which was given us, which was given us in Christ before the world began, in Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, do you need to know what God did? He decided to choose. Do you need to know why he chose? It was according to his own purpose and grace. Do you need to know when he chose? It was before the foundation of the world. Do you need to know if you are chosen? Believe the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus 
with eternal glory. Now there the Apostle Paul tells us that there are elect and they have yet to attain, obtain salvation. Now does that tell you that people are not elected when they believe? But they are chosen beforehand and God purposed that they would obtain salvation. And that's why the Apostle Paul was so diligent to keep on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the elect would hear and they would come to Jesus Christ in faith. Now we've already read in our text in Matthew 24 that Jesus acknowledged the elect. That everything that he did was for the elect. He was born for the elect. Matthew 1.21 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Evidently, there must be some that are not his people. Didn't he say the same later? John 10.25-27, Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The words that I do, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John 6, 36 and 37, But I say unto you that ye have also seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Who are those that come to Christ? These are the ones that are given to him. Didn't we read that last week in John 17 too? And when did he give them? You know the answer, don't you? Before the foundation of the world. Just a few more. John 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of my Father in my name he may give it to you. And then I'd leave you to read all of John chapter 17 very carefully and honestly. Read that without any kind of predisposition and see who Christ prayed for. See that he prayed for those that were given to him by the Father and very specifically he said he did not pray for the world in general. Christ was born for the elect, he lived for the elect, and I'll leave you with this, he died for the elect. John 10 verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. John 10, 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then we go back to John 10, 26. But ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now you should be able to see that sheep are the same as the elect, that he gave his life for the sheep, but he did not give his life for those who are not the sheep. Now the Bible says that what Jesus did, and his own example, in his own example, that he sought out the one last sheep, lost sheep, and what did he do with the lost sheep? He brought him home. He sought him out, he found him, and he brought him home. He didn't leave any of his lost sheep out there. Do you understand that? He didn't leave any of his lost sheep out there. He went out there, he sought them, and he found them. Now, I'm going to stop with that. And you can argue with what I've said if you like. You can argue for 400 years because people have, been, have done it. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that the days of the tribulation would be shortened because of the elect. That God's going to end the tribulation and his people will reign in a glorious kingdom. Now the question is, are you one of God's elect? Are you one of those people that God wrote your name down before the foundation of the world? Did God do that for you? Can you know that God did that for you? You can. The elect are revealed by the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you been excluded from heaven? Did God exclude you from heaven? Does that concern you that you may have been excluded from heaven? Then I'll tell you, trust Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then you'll know that God loved you in a very special way. And he loved you so much that he chose you before the foundation of the world. 
And there is no feeling like this, the knowing that God does not love you because he saw something in you. That God does not love you because you have some worth to be saved. That God did not love you because he saw that you're such a good person. You deserve this so much. You mean so much that you must be saved. Well, the only reason that God saved anybody was because of what was in himself. It was what's in him, that he's a God of love and mercy and grace, and that's the only reason that he ever saves a single person. And when God chose you and revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, his purpose was to make you a trophy of his grace. Now, one more time, I'm going to ask you, are you one of God's elect? And the answer to that question is yes, If you realize that you are an unworthy sinner and that you can only be saved by trusting Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, the answer is yes, you are one of God's elect. And the only thing that you need to do is believe it and receive it. Now, what I've done today and in the other message was just to give you the theology of why you believe. And you may not understand all of that, and you might not even agree with me about all of the things that I've said today. You may not agree with me, and I'll just tell you this, regardless of whether you agree or not, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you believe that, then you'll know that your name was written down before the foundation of the world. That's the great promise that we have. Anyone who comes to Jesus Christ believing him can be saved. That's the most important thing. Well, all of what I've said today, I hopefully it was important. I didn't spend these last 50 minutes or so on unimportant things. Well, let me, let me just reiterate this and we'll close. I said in the beginning of the message that you have the responsibility to know more about your salvation. I could have skipped the subject... I could have skipped the word elect in Matthew 24 and say, let's go on to something else and let's talk about something else. But this is part of what preachers should do, is to teach you more about your salvation. Why did God do what he did? And he just happened to leave us a pathway here to follow that shows us why he did what he did. Accept it, believe it, and be thankful for the matchless grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you, Lord, that we've been able to look into your word. And although, as I've said, this is a subject that's been hotly debated for 400 years, 500 years. Yet we need to know the truth of it. We can argue about it, but there there are things that are said in the word of God that we should believe. They're very clear to us. They're very plainly stated. And we do no good to argue against you. You're the potter. We are the clay. We just believe what you've given. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here who's lost today, that having heard the message of Jesus Christ, that they would understand there is no way to be saved except by him. There aren't ten ways to be saved. There aren't five ways to be saved or two ways to be saved. There is one. And salvation is all of God through Jesus Christ. Would you help them to see that and believe it? Because we know that your Holy Spirit must reveal it. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.